and welcome back to another thrilling episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble Dungeon Master, Brennan Lee Mulligan. This is our show where we talk about all things tabletop and how to run amazing games at your table for your friends. Today, our amazing guest, oh my goodness, am I so excited to introduce her. She is a TTRPG author, a TTRPG streamer, a game event coordinator, co-host of the podcast Femsplained, and author of Neverland, The Impossible Island, a TTRPG setting guide and adventure based on Peter Pan. Oh my God. Welcome, one and all, Ms. Diana Gaeta. I'm ready to fight now. I think that was <laughs> that's the best uh, introduction anyone's ever given me. So, pow. <laughs> uh, of course, and well deserved. Oh my God. Neverland, a TTRPG setting from one of our most classic fantastical stories. Uh, before we were jumped on, I was talking to you about how impossibly cool I think this is. What what prompted uh, this creative journey? What prompted this project? Okay, okay. So I could talk about this forever. This is uh, a a story that I I loved as a kid for all the classic childhood reasons, right? I, I loved Mary Martin, uh, you know, in in her version. Um, I liked the cartoon. I liked Hook growing up. Like loved all of all of the Peter Pan related things as a kid. And then I have this very distinct memory from when I was like older, when I was a teenager, and I was like, I don't know, this little closeted you know, queer person with, with, you know, with whatever, uh, going on. And I went and opened this book back up and read the novel, uh, for the first time. And it struck an entirely different chord with me. It felt inherently relatable as like a, a story that to me could only be about like, a, a queer experience, which I, I recognize is very much me putting rainbow colored glasses on when I uh, read everything. But this story struck me not as a kid story being told to kids, but that the story of like some very adult feelings and pains being told to through the lens of a kid's story. Um, so I've been in love with it pretty much my entire life well into adulthood it's something I can go on a rant about at the drop of a hat uh and I guess pretty much the other thing in my life that I'm equally uh obsessed with is TTRPGs D&D &D and 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 many others and uh, uh two years ago or something like that three years ago maybe my uh co-host on Femsplained and my best friend was like you never shut up about those two things. Um, can they meet <laughs> at all? <laughs> and I was like, I, it was just like this light bulb. Like it just, the, the switch flipped and I could not get it out of my head from that moment on. And, uh, and we immediately set up a game with some friends that was totally off the cuff. I didn't write anything down. I just was like, let me just, wing a, a game set in Neverland, see if it makes sense, if it, if it fits. And it was so much fun. And then I started writing it down and did actual play testing and, and stuff like that. And it, it was a, a, a dream 
come true. So, yeah. Uh, incredible. I mean, there are so many different, like, rabbit holes presented in what you said that I could dive into. I could truly <laughs> talk about just, like, the weird inner mythology and cosmology of Neverland. It's just so fascinating. I, I tweeted out one time. It was a joke tweet, but it was a whole thing about, like, I think the tweet was something along the lines of like, uh, there is something fascinating in the stage play where Mr. Darling and Captain Hook are always double cast, mm -hmm. almost to represent that the true nemesis of Captain Hook most represents the adult masculinity that Peter is seeking to avoid uh, in his life because it's the father figure from the real world. And of course, the crocodile represents big old crocodiles and how scary they are. And yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's always a place in fantasy where the allegory falls apart and you're just dealing with make-believe. But, um, uh, but uh, uh, no, there's a, uh, or maybe the crocodile and the clock is a clear metaphor for death, but uh, whatever you want to do, you know. Um, uh, so I want to talk about like what that, because I think there there is something about these very archetypal stories. And we have folklore that goes all the way back. Because I grew up in a household that had, you know, like early Irish Celtic pagan, like stuff that's like truly centuries or millennia or whatever old. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, that gets updated because like fairy folklore is, of course, you know, the old Irish Celtic stuff reacting to the introduction of Christianity. And then you have tall tales, which are even more recent than that. And then you have like modern commercial mythologies, like superheroes and stuff like that. But with that, with Peter Pan in particular, and that those, those, there's a bunch of those stories from around the same time of like Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, um, uh, a little bit later than that, but like the Wizard of Oz of these like children's stories that seem to have such an intensity of theme past what we think of a modern sensibility towards children's stories. Um, and what are, what is it about that, that like attracted you to it? What do you think, especially in the case of like Neverland, those themes really are. And then I guess most importantly for this show, what does that make you have to change about D and D if anything? Oh, totally. Okay. So, so what drew me to it, you know, as a, as a, a story and, uh, as a setting is that, you know, it can be, it, Neverland can be anything that you want it to be. So Neverland is this magical Island, right. That is just fueled by and made up of just like the collective imagination being smashed together of, you know, everybody that's on it, which in the original story is a bunch of kids who can't remember anything that came before. So their collective memory is all, uh, you know, jumbled. So you have, uh, you can kind of create pretty much anything in Neverland. One of my, <laughs> one of my least favorite uh, uh, things, one, the first time I ever had like, uh, uh, like a post on the internet blow up, which is a scary thing, uh, was I had made a map for a D&D &D game and I posted like a tutorial on how to do it. And and mostly everyone was great about it, but like there was a ton of people and they were like, a river would never be there. And Neverland was my excuse to be like, you can't say that to me. A river can be wherever the 
kind of one because uh, <laughs> you, this is Neverland. This is an imagination world where, um, you know, it's just pulling random things from, from the heads of, of whoever is there and scrambling them together. And I love that freedom. I love that it is kind of the antithesis of so much of the games I, I was brought into gaming on where everything was hyper literal gritty and you know uh uh graphic and you know lots of wargaming and some of the older editions of D stuff like that uh so I, I just love that it's totally a place where anything goes and everything's free form and that's all I, the trying to imagine a person who can give the buy-in to a high fantasy world and then get, just have all of their joy shattered by a misplaced river. <laughs> what the, what the fuck is, what the fuck is that? I, it's, it's a very funny thing. Cause listen, I, I, so I'm going to say two things that can both be true. Number one. It is very cool to let your fantasy worlds be inspired by any number of knowledge disciplines from real life, whether those are STEM, whether those are humanities, or in some cases, whether those are real geography and cartography and geology, biology, uh, physics, whatever. You know, if you want to take a cool bit of real science and allow it to inspire you into a big fantasy world, that's awesome. Verisimilitude like actually cleaving to reality isn't gonna happen if people are casting spells, right? Like, and, and this is also true for people that love to make systems of explaining their magic. I love it. I love a good, oh, like, how God. does magic work in this world? That's great. But at a certain point, it's a, it, it's Zeno's paradox. Cause you can go like, okay, we'll explain this. Okay, I explained that. Okay, but there's some more questions. We'll explain that. Okay, well, I'll explain that. We'll explain that again. And you go, you know, we're never gonna get to sense, right? Because right. it's magic. If I could explain really how it worked, I'd be able to do it for real right now. Like Exactly, yeah. And and it's it, it more boils down to the fact that I, I don't have those knowledges. I don't have a knowledge of geology. That's not my my area of expertise. I would love to play in a game with a GM who does. It would yeah. be cool and I'm sure very um, uh, very awesome and explorative, but uh, I don't have that. So, I mean, really this was for me. <laughs> this yeah. was me just kind of making uh, something where that doesn't matter. Of course. Well, and I think too that like who, for anyone watching this, whatever your sphere of interest is, make that your world. Because, for example, like if you look at you know the 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 uh, work of fantasy that most clearly influenced the genesis of Dungeons and Dragons, which is Lord of the Rings, to the extent where the Tolkien estate had to tell. You know, Gary Gygax, like, you can't call them hobbits. You know, like, it's like you got it. You're literally just stealing. Um, but that that point of, like, um, if you look at, like, Middle Earth as a setting, the linguistics, ma, very on point, because that's what he was interested in. Um, yes. If you look at, the like, all the other problems with it, uh, not only social, currently social problems, but also, like, um, just the fact of like, this sword was forged 10,000 years ago and it's the best one we ever made. And you go like, 
no one's made a better sword in 10,000. Is every smith in this world the most self-loathing, depressed person? They're like, one guy nailed it 10,000 years ago, and there's literally been no advancement since then. It's- that's actually the lesson. It's it's hard because that's the first lesson when you go to smithing school is they're like, you'll never be as good as that guy. And everybody drops out. They're like, well, OK. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. You're exactly right. It's, it's the, I mean, but that's like baked into Tolkien's world is this idea of like everything used to be better than it is now, which is a poetic piece of world building, but it makes it like, if you're, in other words, if you're going to call someone out on a river placement and unironically enjoy Lord of the Rings, where it's like, in order for any of this to make sense, every understanding of technology that we have, you have to throw out of the window. Like no one innovates anywhere in middle earth. Nothing ever gets better. Um, wild. Um, but uh, to, to turn it back to you in terms of like, um, jumping into Neverland as that setting and being really excited about uh, bringing that world. Um, as someone, as you've said, who loves D&D, but also loves Neverland, um, what were the things, like, like uh, what were the parts you had the most fun with, I guess, on like a narrative level? And then maybe also like on a mechanical level. Uh, yeah, I had fun. Uh, the most fun I had was um building on the the factions of of Neverland. So like Jam Barry does a lot of things in that novel where he just the entire tone of the book he's very matter of fact about things uh about the fantasy nature of things in a way where he's just like well everyone knows that fairies exist and and then we'll move on. He doesn't ever like elaborate or give like a whole in-depth history really of, of multiple, um, parts of this fantasy. And there are some things he sort of sprinkles in and then never really elaborates on. And uh, some of those things are, uh, these two groups called the scorpions and the mollusks. And I was like, well, that sounds like a whole story we never got to know. Uh, so, I got to take those and build them into like these sort of anti-Lost Boy uh, like factions that exist out in Neverland, giving people basically different um, backgrounds that you could choose in addition to just, you're not stuck in, you just have to be a lost, a lost one. You just yeah. have to play this as that role. You can also be somewhere else, be doing something else. Um, uh, so I had fun with that. Mechanics-wise, I I liked uh, coming up with a rule for the memory thing. You know, Neverland, once you go there, most people don't remember or start to forget uh, their time before being in Neverland. Um, and instead of just making that a blanket rule, I may left it up to chance, gave it a little bit of a mechanic that can develop the longer you've been there. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and then I think I think the figments, though, the figments are my favorite part. Uh, even, you know, I want to um, I would like that's my uh, dream when I find time again is to to do more of them and create more of them. But uh, the inhabitants, the non sentient inhabitants of Neverland, uh, the monsters of Neverland um, are basically, you know, 
figments like figments of your imagination, uh, but they're solid. They've just been mm -hmm. manifested into this world by uh, the fragmented imaginations of the people there. Uh, incredibly cool. And I also love the idea of playing a like monster made corporeal from the psychic manifestations of whatever <laughs> it feels it's there's there's a lot of sort of sympathy i feel not not in the the sympathy in sort of a, a classical sense of like ooh i recognize something in this from like dimension 20 and the impossible island of this idea of like yes this rule set has been crafted with a very specific type of like sword and spell slinging high fantasy in mind but i'd love to see it in these other genres um and see it in these other these other sort of places like that um when you were writing the setting did you um did you feel like a desire to put any kind of like thematic or narrative direction or was there kind of an assumption on your part that like if people grab this book they like this is such an established like part of all of our imaginations that i trust that they're going to be able to play in the setting and know that this is not like you know slumming it in water deep Ooh, um so it was very difficult for me because i have I have so many of my own like emotions about this story, about this setting that date back to childhood. So it's very hard for me. It was very hard for me to write this and not be like, this is exactly what you should do and how it should go. And this is exactly the path you should follow. Uh, so I tried actively not to do that, to give people more room with what to do with it. Um, tried to kind of instead hint at several possibilities as to what this could look like in your campaign instead of telling you exactly how I feel about it, which is, you know, was a little bit of a challenge for me. I fully hear you. And I think that's always a thing when you're trying to, because so much of what you're trying to communicate when something is that heartfelt is the vibe or the feeling of it. And uh, it's. I wanted to go back to something you said too and explore that more as well because you were talking about like going back as an adult and rereading the source material um, and connecting with it uh, uh, and finding resonance in it as a queer adult and like I have so many friends uh, uh, who talk about like going into the core D and D text and finding resonance with things where it's like, I have so many friends who are like, listen, like you can't tell me that like tieflings are not queer coded or that this other, you know, part of the, like, I have so many friends who like find resonance in these things. Uh, and what, like, like bo both in Neverland, which you've talked about, but I think also in D and D in general, I have so many friends who crack jokes with their other friends who are LGBT about like their half orc characters and their tiefling characters and finding that resonance in a place where maybe it is, or maybe it isn't, or maybe it's up to interpretation. What is that process like in D and D? And do you think that occurs in D and D as much as you uh, like felt it occurring in the Neverland setting? Well, so I, I think I do see those resonances in D&D, &D, but a little bit of background on me, like when I used to, when I first learned about these games, well, when I first learned about these games, I was not allowed. It was like, get out of here, you, 
<laughs> are are a lady. Go away. Um, but when I first was introduced to them, mm-hmm. so much of what you know, and I'm grateful and thankful to so much of the media, uh, yourself included, and all of the others that have kind of shown a spotlight on the role play aspect, the the um, narrative aspects of those games that when I first started to play them was much more muted. It was much more like a, a war game with sprinkles of narrative or like little bits of, of flavor that were, um, that were through it. Uh, but, you know, once I was introduced to the possibility of playing it with, with narration and role play and um, improv being like at the front of the story, it changed it. And that's when I started to feel connected to D&D on those personal levels where I was just like, well, this is like, you know, I mean, I was, I was a theater kid in high school and I was not very good at it. So uh, I feel like a big part of, you know, cause if you're a young queer person and you're not good at theater, you're really a little left out of, of, of some things. And I feel like D and D is just waiting there for all of the, you know, theater kids who've grown up and have no outlet for that and have no uh, way to express that and also could never get cast in any of those great roles that they wanted to do. And like now you're you're casting yourself. Um, I have definitely um, I have definitely played uh, Maureen Johnson from Rent as an elf um, at least once in a and day game. No one knows this uh I didn't say it but like you know you can like write yourself into whatever role you want and express it in that way and I think there's a distinct relationship between like the love of of acting in theater and and just having fun being other characters and D&D and that's just something that is so tied to the young queer experience also so I see like that there are parallels there a hundred percent. And it's very, and, and again, it's like, there is, I have so many friends who have this ex- shared experience of, I made a character in a tabletop game with an identity that I was percolating on myself about like, it, and, and the ability to like, try it first in this environment where, hey, we're all crafting an identity. We're all crafting a persona. That's literally what the game requires of you. And immediately finding resonance and comfort and wholeness within this identity, <laughs> even displaced onto a character, even displaced onto this other thing and being like, oh, that feels amazing. Um, I'm good. I want to do that for real this time. Um, yeah. Uh, it, and it's it's a... Uh, a Maybe surprising is not the right word, but it is something that that like during this like past couple of years of D and D Renaissance, I found so many friends over and over again who had that same shared experience. Um, yeah, and with like with Neverland in particular, like you find 
I mean, obviously there are some, there are some silly and obvious reasons I could point out why that feels like it resonates as, you know, a queer person, you know, fairies and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like that. But, but genuinely it was, it was reading that source material later as an adult. And it honestly, it doesn't feel like something that's a big stretch to me. So there's this, um, this like famous part of, of Peter Pan that you probably recognize. They quote it in Hook. They quote it in all the, all the movies um, about the origin of fairies, right? Mm-hmm. About, uh, you know, the first baby laugh for the first time and the laugh broke into a thousand pieces and they all went skipping about. And those are the beginning of fairies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the description of like the beginning of fairies goes on to set up this universe where... Every little girl and every little boy on earth are born with a fairy that is, if they are a little girl born, they get a little girl fairy. And if they are a little boy, they get a little boy fairy. And immediately after that, J.M. Barry introduces us to Peter Pan, who is a little boy born without a fairy who runs away and finds one named Tinkerbell. And she would literally rather die than be without him. And that is a, I have never, I could never make that up because it's too obvious. Like it's so, you know, it's so quintessential and it just has resonated with me uh, so hard in so many increasingly developing ways over the course of my life. Uh, and so I think that that story uh, I, th- I think, and I do, I meet other people who for no, you know, no real descriptive reason are just like, yeah, I do jive with that story and maybe don't have an explicit reason why. And I, I just think it has those themes in it. Uh, I think that's so beautiful. And I think that again, there's like a, wow. And that's such a, I don't know. I'm just, I'm like reeling from that picture that you've painted there. <laughs> But I think again, you're not. It's there. It's there's a weird thing where it's like there's the interpretation, and everyone. It's like we all make peace with the degree to which we're interpreting a piece of art, but then we also kind of. It's like we like death of the author, but then also we sometimes want the author to have really meant it as well. <laughs> and oh it's God. like this weird wrestling of like, well, it doesn't matter what the hell you think, author. Like, here's my interpretation, but if you also had the same interpretation, that'd be really cool. And you want that, so it's it's an interesting element of like. But I think with like Peter Pan in particular, and with a lot of these things. There are those those messages like I look Mary Martin as Peter Pan. I watched that on VHS over and over again, and and that's that does mean something. That casting does the fact that Peter Pan is a like the eternal boy who is always played by an adult woman. There's something cool there. There's something that you latch onto there. That's there like is. yeah. Peter Pan has no problems about girls growing up. He's got mm-hmm. no issue with it. He's got zero problems with it, but he's so offended by just the idea that any man anywhere has chosen to to be a dude. He's so so angry about it. And in fact, so Captain Hook, his whole like 
animosity towards him. This is a problem for me. I'm so sorry. So yeah. his so <laughs> so when Captain Hook is like having his confrontations and their battles together, he's never like you're a real prick. You know that? No, he's like you are not following the rules. You are not doing what you're supposed to do, and growing up, like you're. You somehow weaseled your way out of becoming this. And I hate you for that for some reason. <laughs> like, yeah, there's some, there's, there's, there is some there there. It's not pure <laughs> interpretation. There's some there there. I uh, always say that, like, if, if you've ever been at a party and someone asks, like, the seance question, like, if you could ever speak to someone uh, from beyond the grave to, like, ask them a couple of questions. It's always Jam Barry. I'm gonna be like, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Well, it's fair, and I think too to your point of like, especially going like, we've inherited all these cultural things. D and D, one of them. This like long running game that's gone through many different editions and iterations, and people find meaning if find new meaning in it and people go and again there's this this dance between interpretation but also between what was actually like intended in the text but i'm just a little bit tangentially but i remember having a professor one time who who put it into context where he's like if you find these themes he's basically saying like I had a professor who did a great job of being like, anyone who tells you that these questions of identity are purely modern and that as <laughs> though like queer people arrived in the 20th century and had never existed before that, you know, he basically said like for a thousand years, European art was dominated by a single church that really insisted that almost all art be towards the nature of what that church's doctrine already was. However, if you think the individual artists were not themselves inserting personal, deeply personal or, or, or messages and stories and thoughts and feelings that were directly relevant to their own lives. And if you think that those artists did not themselves have those identities, you're, you're completely out of it. You couldn't be more wrong. Like, so if you go back into the past, don't let anyone tell you that finding resonance on a personal level is anachronistic. Those stories existed at the time as well. And if you found something there, don't just dismiss it out of hand because it's an anachronism. There's no such thing when it comes to identity and the past in terms of that kind of feeling. Um, which I think is a really beautiful uh, uh, sentiment. Yeah, uh, I do too. I, I really do. I, um, you know, it's, and they, they, they do sometimes sanitize people in, in that way of in the past, you know, um, there's this whole, you know, trope of like, you know, these two old ladies who lived and died together because they were just such close friends, uh, <laughs> such good pals. Uh, they, uh, they just loved gardening too much <laughs> to have husbands. Um, and that's, you know, that, that their history kind of just, you know, kind of wafts that away. Um, yeah, you see that over, it's, it's so much, like, if you look in the past and, and be like, did these people not exist? Or were there powerful institutions who were had an agenda to erase their existence? The second option is so much more reasonable than the first, even to the degree that they like, you know, the the, the finding like Nordic warrior cairns 
And, you know, <laughs> modern scientists going back and being like, hey, we like looked at these, like there's every reason to believe that there were women who were given warrior burials and the, being like, did you guys not think to check? And it's like, oh, well, we just saw a sword and said, this is a guy for sure. And you're like, that's so fucked. <laughs> so like, yeah, but you know, like that's your cultural, uh, uh, what, you're putting the weight of your culture on something and not having a, not going into the actual facts of it. Like you've completely put your uh, hegemonic patriarchal yada yada on top of this cool ass Viking lady and uh, go to hell. Yeah, that's, that is so funny because, all right. So when I was in college, my major was sociology, but our department was, was a very small school. And so our department, our sociology department was actually like split and combined with the anthropology department. So you could not major in them separately. You had to do them together. And it was like having two different people whisper in your ears because the anthropology people had that, like it, if there was a sword, it was a dude. And if there was a pot of any kind nearby, it was a woman. And sociology was like, everybody's been gay forever. And heterosexuality might be a myth. Like they, sociology was just telling us something completely different the entire time. Well, I love it too. Cause it's one of those things where like, look, I love, like I love research. I love science. I love the, the empirical standard. It's the, the first time that someone was like, hey, let's not rely on authority to derive knowledge. Let's experiment. Let's see if it's true. Beautiful, the scientific process, I love it. Also, culture spoils everything. There's like years of research mm -hmm. where we like, we didn't we find out like 10 or 15 years ago that like mice can smell uh, male pheromones even on humans and it creates stress responses in them. So like 80 years of scientific research. Same, if we did mice. Back, yeah, if, <laughs> same, like, super relatable mice. Relatable. But it's like, oh, anytime there was a male researcher doing a stress test on a mouse, that all of that is trash. You have to throw all that away. And it's like, oh, we just didn't think it was just like, you know, you cut to like some 1950s scientist being like, science is for men and so is smoking in the laboratory. And you're like, Jesus, <laughs> like, this is so bad, you know. Um, and it, so, yes, uh, complex. Um, yes. <laughs> to, uh, to talk about D&D &D for uh, uh, a little bit more as well, um, uh, I wanted to talk as well because we've we've uh, going into all of like the literary analysis of J.M. Barry's work and Peter Pan is so cool. And for me, I'm immediately in my head, I'm like, oh my god, like do Oz next, do Wonderland next, like uh, you know, um, uh, all these amazing settings and stories. Um, uh, but talk to me a little bit about um, uh, your experience in tabletop. As you said, like you weren't allowed uh, doing it. So like you were either like, was that was it a parental thing or was that like the people playing when you were a kid were like gatekeepy assholes? Um, yeah, yeah. So like there's a, there's a weird part in every like uh, a person assigned female at birth can probably relate to this that there's this like weird line in the sand that happens at some point in your childhood and it's either like the boobs arrived or something happened whatever it is that like everything is normal like up until then and you like hang with your friends 
and you go for bike rides and everything is like, you know, normal and, and gender is not a thing you think about. And then there's like some day where like some adults in your life, either teachers or parents like sit you down and are like, you can't hang out with them anymore. And you can't hang out with them anymore. And I, you know, I was always, um, a, a very, I'm going to, I'm going to try to be nice to myself here, but I was weird, you know, like I was very, uh, uh, um, outcasted in general, uh, for some, some oddness. But what I realized was that after that point in time happened, like I was kind of a weird nerdy kid, but I was also like not allowed to be around like the nerdy guys that I was previously friends with. And I remember, so I used to hang out, um, at the library because I was very cool. And at the library, there was a, uh, in the YA section, there was like a, um, a game night on Fridays or Saturdays or something. And when I was, you know, at some point it was all Pokemon cards all the time. And I was in it. I was playing Pokemon cards. I love Pokemon cards. It was great. And then Something shifted. All of a sudden, everybody was playing Magic the Gathering. I had kind of like missed some sort of train on it. I was a little disappointed. I still wanted to play Pokemon. Nobody wanted to play it anymore. And I remember I walked up to a group of guys that I knew, you know, um, and we were in middle school-ish at the time, and they were playing Magic the Gathering. And I was like, oh, so can I learn how to play this? And they were like, offended that I didn't know how to play already. And they were just like, this is not for girls. Just get out of here. And, and basically like that ha happened again when everybody started playing D and D on those nights. And I just kind of quickly learned like, Oh, okay. That's not for me. Um, and I walked away from it for a long time. And then like later in high school, when I channeled all my weirdness into being goth uh, instead of uh, other things, uh, the goth kids introduced me to Vampire the Masquerade, and they did not seem to have a problem with the fact that I was lady-shaped. Uh, so um, we started playing that, and I had no idea for a long time that D&D &D and this game that I was playing were any way even remotely similar. Like I, cause I never even saw it played. I was just told right away, like, this isn't for you. Get out of here. Um, so I played, I, I played Vampire the Masquerade and like, and then went through a, a world of darkness phase for, you know, years after that of different ones. And, uh, and it wasn't until, uh, years later that I went to, um, a gaming store and saw people playing D and D, and I was like, "Well, this looks familiar to me now. Like, may like maybe I should uh, check this out." And I did. I got into it. Uh, like I said, like I played a lot of games with with a lot of guys who were maybe not the best. Uh, <laughs> maybe hindsight tells me they were not super swell. Um, but ultimately, what I realized is the more that I got into it. Um, like I was sort of like being judged for not having been there the whole time, 
like, and this is something that I know is not a, not a solo experience, but like as a, a woman who is getting into those things for like the first 15 years or so, you're told to get out of here. And then like for the next rest of your life, you're being told like, well, where were you? Like, where have you been? Like, why aren't you, why weren't you here from the beginning? Um, and, uh, and so there was a struggle with that. And you're like, you know, you're being quizzed all the time and in, you have to know all the facts and I'm not really about that. I just want to play make believe. So, uh, you know, but like, but that's just me. There are plenty of women who do know, have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the stats in the monster manual and, and, you know, know everything like that. So, um, so it can be, you know, frustrating and, and infantilizing and stuff. And what, what started to undo all of those experiences was basically me each, each step along the way of me just being like, I'm going to instead take ownership of this space and now it belongs to me and and therefore it has always belonged to me and that's been my um my method and uh the first time basically like I I, I had started going to gaming events and gaming conventions and stuff when I was really getting into it and all of them it was a good time. It was fun. Uh, occasionally you would have some real awkward experiences, sometimes worse than awkward, but ultimately they were always being run by, you know, by, by dudes and that's fine. But what really changed for me was when I started, I joined, um, a, an organizational team to run one of these cons. And what changed in me also changed in the shape of the event. Um, the year I was like basically put on the announcement as somebody running this like this gaming event, that year for the first time ever, young women signed up to come and play the games, like teenage women, like teenage girls, um, which had not happened before. And I looking back, I was like, yeah, I was going in my twenties, but if I was, you know, teen, I would never step foot in this place. Cause it's just so many older guys there and no one who, you know, you can feel safe around. Um, and, and so I noticed that I clocked that difference. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, I want to get my hands all over this and just be in it everywhere. So that, like more young girls feel like they can show up and, um, you know, and that's just been my, my ownership and my empowerment of, of it. And it's made it so much more enjoyable. Ooh, um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's blood boiling. It's blood boiling to think of this game being deprived to people. And I'm so sorry uh, for young Diana that uh, she had to go through that. I mean, shit, it's incredible how many doors you're opening for younger people now. It sucks that you were treated that way, and it sucks that so many people, like you were saying, uh, were treated this way. Um, 
uh, gatekeeping anything is a nightmare, let alone a game that is a, a, ga a game. It's a game. It's a game. It's for joy. It's, it's for joy. It's for having fun. Yeah. It's for friendship. What what are you doing? Um, uh, but, uh, oh, my God, uh, uh, you know, nothing but the highest of honor and respect and accolades for uh, taking the wheels and, like, exposing people to this game. Because, like, there is so much catharsis and joy and adventure and fun in it, and it should belong to everybody. Uh, and it's so exciting um, to watch, you know, the right people, the most heroic people for this game of heroic storytelling, grab the reins and be the people leading the next chapter. Uh, it's uh, incredibly meaningful uh, uh, and intoxicatingly so. Um, aside from all of the rampant evil of bigotry and misogyny and uh, uh, hopefully the joy of crushing the legacy of those gatekeepers into the dust and having them watch as they just lose forever. Um, also, the, on top of that, uh, in terms of that, uh, yeah, there is that attitude you're talking about. In addition to the primary evil of misogyny and ex exclusivity and bigotry, uh, also that attitude of, there's, there's very few things that set me off of, um, uh, uh, disrespecting someone for not knowing something. It is, uh, uh, it is hell. I mean, there's nothing more um, upsetting than that. that like, yeah, you, we're, there's so, there's too much knowledge. We are a compartmentalized species. We have experts. Everyone you meet knows something you don't know. And there is something you know that everyone you meet doesn't know. Fucking be nice. Uh, yeah. Just be nice. Um, uh, thank you for sharing that, and that is so goddamn cool. Uh, is that something? Is that something you're still running? By the way, what what like the program convention? So uh, yeah, so I'm. I mean, I'm not running anything now because uh, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I had moved on to now. You know, the ever growing evolution of life. Uh, I I am very happy to have kind of. Um, you know, hopefully inspired more women, young women to get into gaming. Uh, but now, most recently, up until uh, the pandemic happened, I was running exclusively LGBTQ uh, gaming events uh, around the larger New York City area. Um, and so that's that was my new thing was that, well, now I want to play games and be able to make as many like loving gay references as I want to, uh, you know, like, and that's the environment that we've been, uh, we were having there and it was, it was great. And it was kind of new too. Um, but it was, it was going really well. And I'm very hopeful that in the future times that will, that will continue. Hell yes. Incredibly <laughs> exciting. Uh, uh, every I know that we have your socials up here, but everyone go follow Diana, especially if you are an LGBTQ gamer in the greater New York area. Shout out to the greatest and best city in the world. Yeah. And uh, uh, jump, <laughs> I hope you can jump into one of those events because that sounds fucking incredible. Um, questions about gaming from uh, our Discord users. We gotta, we gotta. Oh, get, yeah. Um, uh, uh, we gotta jump in. Um, uh, um, this first one comes to us from Cody Kulo. Thanks, Cody Kulo. Um, 
I'm currently writing my own setting for my Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons group. However, I'm worried about not having deep enough lore or not enough general world building. As a writer, how do you approach these topics? Uh, well, thanks for the question, Cody. I'm sure your lore is great, uh, uh, but well, I guess we could we could dive into the question of how to get that lore deep enough and how, where when do how do you know when can you put that little fork in the world building to know that it's done? Um, yeah, if you I mean, well, one, uh, if you don't have uh, a at least one snow capped mountain, can't. <laughs> Can't it can't not done. If there's no snow capped mountain, it's not done. So you gotta go back, put it back in the oven, let it percolate for a while. So uh that's what I think. I um, love straight advice. Just right to the point. Listen, I'm not gonna bullshit. Get a snowy mountain in there. <laughs> yeah. I, I could sit here and talk theory. Um <laughs> uh but please continue. Yes, yes, yes. But yes, so I think that uh for me writing the um, I like to, if I have a lore in mind, and it sounds like uh, Cody does have at least bits and pieces of the lore in mind from the way that that question was phrased. I, if I have the lore in mind, I would like to to develop that as best I could in like a narrative sense before trying to do world building in terms of locations and where things are. Um, because then you can kind of match it to, you know, to where the location should be, like, you know, based on the events of the world. Uh, the other way to do it is my favorite way, which is just to take, you know, your biggest cup full of dice, throw them onto the table, and decide if D20s are you know, mountains, D10s or rivers and D6s are plains or whatever and just stick everything wherever you want and then from there make up the lore around that. I, you know, I have no, I have no authority here, uh, but I, but that's my advice. <laughs> um, incredible. Uh, well, listen, uh, we're on a, a vodcast about how to do make em ups good. So authority may be out of the question in general. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't, I would, I would sort of squint at any person being like, as an authority on make believe fantasy lands. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but I totally agree. I think that there is, well, he, let, let me tell you what I can bring to this is. Uh, is tricks because one of the things with dimension 20 has always been like making up worlds fast like we have three months in between campaigns we we're an anthology show so we often do new settings um part of the creative decision making behind things like fantasy high or the unsleeping city was the degree of like, well, shit, I know New York. So if I just go like, okay, what's in New York? This? Yeah, how would that be magic? Blah, and there you go, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like Grand Central's got a big clock in the middle. Clock, gnomes, there you go, we're done. Um, and you kind of just, again, this is sort of like nuts and bolts advice because one of the things I, I always want to do with advice, like one of the, the great things about like people's, 
it's not even it's not even necessarily a criticism of J.R.R. Tolkien. It's just an assessment of the richness of the lore of Middle Earth, which is that that dude had somebody doing his laundry. And that's an important thing when so many dungeon masters yeah. are doing their world building in their free time, working a 40 hour a week job like you get home, your body is tired. Do you really want to stat out these monsters or not? Mm -hmm. I, I like I am in a incredibly privileged position of being able to be a dungeon master for a job, which is a goofy set of circumstances. But for the, you know, the the you know, decade plus of time, you know, basically like two decades of time prior to starting work at College Humor, it was happening at like three o'clock in the morning when I walked in from bartending and I would be like, shit, I have a session tomorrow. I have to plan something. Be kind to yourself. Do the thing that's going to make your life easier. One of those make your life easier things is do a little bit of world building to the point where your players can make PCs and then look at what their skill proficiencies are. Look at what they're interested in. If you don't have a single paladin, cleric, or druid, and nobody took the religion skill, no one's interested in the gods. Nobody, 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 nobody. So if you spent two weeks of every evening after work coming up with all of this cross pantheon stuff, you know, like if if it's your if your villain is using that, and all the bad guys are going to be like religious themed, maybe. I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> you know, like you have it be their worst nightmare. Have it uh, the worst nightmare. Yeah. Like nobody cracked. Nobody knows what this world's religious texts say. Oh, we're so <laughs> fucked. Um, but I think. PCs will tell you a little bit about what they're interested in. PCs will, like, even in the character creation, they'll tell you, like, I'm interested in this. Um, and I think that there is a little bit of that, uh, you know, the Wallace and Gromit thing where Gromit is putting the train tracks in front of the moving train, which is how most dungeon masters create their lore of, like, you'll save yourself a lot of time and energy by following your PC's interest. Um, I think that's a good a good place to, to start probably. But um, I think also once you have your player's interest, um, this is a weird, this is like, I, I can't give you a definitive. It would be crazy if like me and Diana were like 10 pages should do it. Like there's yeah. no definitive. There's none. But I think one important thing that we're leaving out too is that it's a very important part of wor world building is that, you know, and I agree, I agree with you wholeheartedly that you are, if you finish it before the game starts, you're going to be disappointing. You're going to be disappointed um, because, you know, it's not going to line up exactly with what the players want um, to do. But if you create a foundation and then you are making it up after that uh, as it goes, and then your players are blown away by this big, you know, surprise, they're going to say to you, like, I can't believe you planned this. And you have to, this is in the code. You have to say, yeah, I. it's been in the works for, <laughs> for a long time. You have to say it and you have to look like, you know, tired. Like you've spent a year on this. Yeah, like you'd be like, this was carefully concocted oh so precisely in the back seat of your car on the way here and that is beautiful <laughs> um <laughs> uh uh how the sausage gets made um but the, i think that that 
no, there is a color. You want that mystique there because it is so, so fun. And I totally agree. And I think, too, that, like, rather than giving a definitive, let, let me give, like, a relativistic. Let me give, like, a here's a measure you should use for yourself, right? Think about, like, s sculpting. If, if you were, like, making clay figures, if you were sculpting something out of clay, right, I think that what you should know about the things you're preparing for a session, NPCs, plot hooks, dungeons, original homebrew monsters and magic items, uh, setting elements, cities, wildernesses, you know, all this stuff that we love in these games. Think about making a clay figure that you know you're gonna need to like, like animate, you know you're gonna need to like bring it to life before it's ready. So just think of like, okay, what does this thing need to actually be able to move? Uh, it, it needs legs, it needs a spine, uh, maybe a tail for balance. And then put it out there knowing I'm gonna finish the face and the scales while it's running around. Right. I'm gonna put the stuff on it because you only kind of need that spine and those limbs because you're gonna have enough familiarity with what it is at that point to improvise the rest. Um, you know, like you make a pantheon, cool, make eight gods, you give them names, you know loosely what their deal is. After that, you should hopefully be in a position where like, okay, if I need to improvise a fable that the cleric knows about this, you know, fertility god, I'm like, <laughs> well, he's a god of grain, and he likes people to be fed. And if you ask me for a story about him, I'm gonna tell you the story about a time some people were hungry and he fed them. And you're like, you know, <laughs> like you, you make just enough to be able to improvise the rest. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's great. This is a great question, Cody. The next question comes to us from Anna. Anna asks, what's the best way to start the session off after the recap to kick your players into action and avoid awkward silence in the beginning of the session? Thank you for the question, Anna. Avoiding the awkward silence. Oh, yeah. I'm very familiar with the awkward silence. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, so, you know, the one option is you could all always just stare silently at the group uh, and make and enhance the awkwardness until people speak out of fear. But I think a better way <laughs> is <laughs> that uh, I, I very much try never to end a session um, like in the middle of downtime or like in the middle of camp time, et cetera. Um, it doesn't always have to be a big cliffhanger or anything like that, but I like to end sessions um, where we know somewhat what direction that is going in so that the recap typically ends with, this is what you did last week. You were about to, and I can kind of lead them in with, you were just about to do something about this. You were about to go to this city. You were about to uh, enter this tavern. You were about to, you know, whatever it is. And that way, the first, the first thing I'm asking is what happens when you do that, so that they're they're kind of jumping into that that actionable statement. 
I think that's perfect. I think that like, like you're saying, it doesn't have to be a perfect cliffhanger, but leaving on that, like, what will our heroes do next week? Like leaving, it's a good vibe. It helps yeah. people because um, when people are arrested in a moment, they have a lot easier time getting back into character than than when the ending kind of trails off. Now, occasionally you won't be able to make the call of where your session ends. Like the game takes as long as it takes. Sometimes you leave it off. But I think if you did end in a period of ambiguity, if you ended in downtime, I think that all that happens at the next session is you have the onus to kind of prime the engine and kickstart the act. Like, let's say you end in like your you end and your players are like, okay, we had a big combat encounter and the ship sails off, and then like we rolled a couple a couple other like wilderness things, and now we're just like stopping in the middle of the ocean en route to somewhere else. Yeah, I think the onus comes on you to like kick action back up again like set the scene a storm is rolling in a new character appears there's some like merfolk that come up to the side of the ship it's like your job to i think rem uh pcs have their hardest this might be i think this might be true i think pcs have their hardest time um when they don't know how to participate in character. You want to feed them a moment yeah. where it's not just them as players talking, but feed them a moment that can elicit an in-character response. Absolutely. This is why I love to, like, as soon as possible, introduce either... A, this is if I if I have like a, a signature as a DM, it is definitely um, introducing a sentient weapon or like animal companion like really early on in the game that the party is just gonna love to have around just so I can always be there in case the awkward silence goes on too long and I can just like go into dialogue with people um so I I that's a little like Thing that hopefully my players are not listening to this right now because then they will be like, Shh, that's every single game. Wow, every game. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having the comic relief, having the sidekick character that can, at the beginning of every session, chime in and just walk out and be like, well, everyone, I'm afraid in our long voyage, I've spilled several barrels of apples in the low. And it's like, oh, this fucking goofball. And then everyone's yeah. like, in character again, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I think that's an important, I think that is an excellent piece of advice. Um, uh, this next question comes to us from Dan J. Uh, Dan asks, as an appreciative DM, how do you reward your players while keeping them challenged? How do you reward your players while keeping them challenged? Oof. I, so I don't, um, gold, Gold becomes so meaningless, like so quickly in D&D, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like just so fast, your your characters are so rich. Um, and that has no meaning. So I tend to reward uh, players, especially after big, um, big story arcs coming to an end, uh, big battles, even big losses, try to reward them with something um really tailored to their character that they built and that's different for each character so like in my home game I have pretty much a split party 
between people who really built their characters because they were super into um, min-maxing and creating the best, you know, statted character and uh, having the best abilities for that character and all of that. And and then a, the other half flavored uh, characters. Like, they, they put all their energy into making sure that this character, like, represented what they wanted. Um, and so for each of those groups, that reward looks differently. But, like, giving the min-max character like an enemy that's like just for them. It has the oppositional to all of those abilities that they finally crafted. And like for that person, like that's gonna be a delight, like having to utilize every single one of those uh, abilities that they agonized over for hours, you know, picking um, and, and to utilize that. Whereas somebody who put more effort into building the backstory of their character, the fluff of it. Uh, I might bring somebody back from their past, bring them, you know, uh, reunite them with somebody, give them some some time to like indulge in that RP and stuff. So I, I do like to do that after like, after a big moment, a big victory or even a big loss that like hits everybody real hard um, to, to throw that in. I love that. I think, and like you're saying, it's knowing your players. Like, the, like rewards should be specialized and tailored. And like, uh, and like you're saying, like a lot of those rewards, uh, only a fraction of rewards need to be mechanical. Like a big magic item that does a very cool game-breaking thing can be really fun. There's a zillion other rewards. A great sidekick, a character earns in-world accolades or fame and recognition. People mm. think the character is a, a badass. The, the characters get a castle. Give your players a castle. What's There's nothing. They can't break the game with a castle. It's yeah. just a building. Give them exactly. a castle. Give the nice kids a castle. Um, uh, I would say, though, to react to something else for a minute, I think there's a false dichotomy in this question because in part of how Dan Jay is asking it, they say, how do you reward your players while keeping them challenged? I do not think this is a slider. It's not like a slider and here's challenged and here's rewarded. It's two different sliders, both of which should be at a yes. Like Yes, yeah. You know, like um, it's, it's all carrot, all stick. You know, like it's both, it's all just way all Tom, all Jerry. Yeah, all Tom, all Jerry. <laughs> You're just eating your friends' beautiful carrots and beating the shit out of them with a stick. And that's ultimately what we all want. Um, is that a disturbing image? We can't say for sure. Um, <laughs> that's subjective. That's person subjective. Person, like mechanics. Me <laughs> 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 no. Um, yeah, I think that there, because that's ultimately, I think what we all, it's like, there's this weird, and I, I like, I don't, I don't know how you, you navigate this, but there is this very weird thing where it's, your players are always kind of a Schrodinger's cat because they, they always want to feel like the, the most badass people in the world have that heroic fantasy and also want to be terrified and completely unsure of if they're going to make it or not. And oh, like, yeah. do you, do you find yourself like, do you have an internal barometer for when like one, like what's your experience as you're playing of like one of these two things is lacking right now? Or like we've, we've gone too far in X direction. Now we need to go Y. Well, I can. So I, I, I like, you know, um, having 
like a mix at my table of like who's there for what uh because I really do kind of have a visual barometer like whoever who's on their phone is it the guy who likes to beat up everybody he sees or is it the guy that likes to cry over his uh you know long lost family because yeah. if if one of them I notice is like starting to become disinterested I know that we've been in combat for too long it's gone yeah. on for too long if the other one, then I know that they're itching for it. Um, so I, I do kind of have that visual visual barometer at my table. But for me, I, in general, uh, and at other tables, I try to take myself out of it. Because I, I could play... I could play a game that has zero combat, <laughs> and I could be fine. Uh, I could absolutely do that. But that's not going to be good for, for everyone else. Uh, so I really do try to um, have, I have like, because I am biased in favor of like the RP side of things. And if I'm not concentrating on it, like combat can fall to the wayside if I'm getting like too into it. Uh, so I have like a little magic bag of encounters that I keep behind the DM screen at all times. If I do notice that I'm just like something, something is off about the vibe here. <laughs> People seem bored. I'm going to just <laughs> pop a dragon out of here. Just dig, dig my hand in there and see what comes out. Every uh, time you check your phone, you will face a dragon in combat. <laughs> Um, no, I, I dig that. I totally agree. I think that there is, yeah, measuring interest is very significant. And like you're saying too, it's like, there is a certain degree to like, there's, listen, I would also say as a DM, you are allowed to put stuff in there that just you like. Like, you're also playing. Every once in a while, I'll find myself saying something and I'm like, my players are into this, but eh, I definitely am more into I was like, this is how, there's a strange notation of arcane runes on this. It seems the wizards that did this. And everyone's like, huh? And it's like, I well, I wanted to do some wizard shit for a second. But that's okay in small doses because you're also a player at the table. You, DMs should also be having a fun time. Um, but like you're saying, you do have to provide that service for the experience that your players want at the table um, and make sure that everyone is getting what they came to the game to get, I think, at the end of the day. Um, yeah. uh, but I definitely do hear that of like, uh, uh, yeah, watching the interest and in having that internal barometer. Um, uh, the uh, This next one comes to us Incredible. This next one comes to us from Jessica Storm Shadow. Um, Jessica Storm Shadow. This, this is a quest. <laughs> it's happening. It's finally happening. It's happening. <laughs> okay. Um, how do you deal with and overcome the anxiety of not having prepped enough and getting stuck in play? Parentheses. And yes, that is my legal last name. Um, amazing. Oh, Truly amazing. God. I have. So I am made of anxiety uh i in preparation for for this today uh i stared at the wall for three hours uh and <laughs> just going uh no uh i but really i am i am an anxious person and i do um D gm games almost exclusively like i haven't been a player in games in years uh so I do deal with a lot of like anxiety and prep is also not something I always really do. I, I, I 
do it a lot, but sometimes I don't. And that my prep is there for me as like a safety blanket, but I'm, I'm more comfortable when I'm making things up as I go. What I like to have is some time between prep and game time where I can just sit and think about what it might be like <laughs> if like if this plays out the way that it's going to play out and I just kind of imagine it and feel like what I what it might feel like and that's like my my zen time where I I I feel like I'm not obsessing over if my monsters are balanced enough or if you know if this makes sense narratively or whatever like I'm just just trying to watch it like in my head a little bit um and that chills me out um before before a game so that's my method uh, 100%. And I think, yeah, that's, I think that's a beautiful answer. And and the question is very specific to the question is not asking how do you prep? It's talking about how do you deal with the anxiety of feeling like you have not prepped enough? And that's always going to be there. I don't know if I've ever prepped so much that I was like, oh, there's not a single thing that could be thrown at me that would, it's like, you always feel like you're coming up a little bit short. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I think you got to be kind to yourself. And, you know, that's it's very easy to say. Be kind to yourself. Next question. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, what I would say is it's important to remember um, one of the things that helps me with anxiety because a lot of my anxiety gets really thwarted actually by emphasizing humility in the face because anxiety. Weird, yeah. in some ways, anxiety is communicating to you that you're the most important person in the world. It's going like everyone's counting on you. No one, none of these idiots who are your best friends know how to have fun without you. If you don't do this, they're all going to die. You know, like. <laughs> if you uh, don't facilitate it, it will all fall apart. It'll all fall apart. These aren't brilliant role players that would absolutely have a ball, even if it was just like the most simple, straightforward monster fight in the world. None of these people have anything to say to each other. And even if you come up and are like, you get like an hour into the session and you're like, hey guys, this went an unexpected direction. Can I have 20 minutes or 30 minutes to like go over some notes and prep for the next thing? What are your, your friends are, are not going to go... <laughs> 20 to 30 minutes of having snacks with people I love. This right. is an outrage. Like it's, <laughs> it's going to be fine. Like, and I think being upfront with your friends being like, Hey gang, I'm coming in today's today's session, a little unprepared. I, I'm coming in today's session with like, that's, that's the kind of stuff that if you're playing with people that you trust and that respect you, everyone's going to go great. Awesome. We got it. Right. Um, right. And if, if people do react in that way and are like, how dare you not, you know, not, not have anticipated every single direction that we could have taken and, and prepared for it. Uh, we're outraged. Then, you know, it's, it's also okay for you to reevaluate if that, that group is, is right for you. That's the, you know, that's totally fine. I genuinely think so. I think that's absolutely correct. If, if you, and again, I like, the response, the minimum response is, that's okay, we understand, that's great. I think in an ideal group, if you, especially if it's happening over multiple sessions, 
someone should step up and say like, hey, do you want me to like run a one shot for a little while? Like if you're, if like prep is straining on you, I can't tell you how many times, I'll get a little, a little, a little personal here one time. I had someone one time uh, many, many years ago uh, get creased at me for never inviting them to a game I was running. And this was when I was running like multiple games with like lots of people at each game. It was lots of prep work. And someone was like, I noticed I never get an invite to one of these games. <laughs> and I just like popped off and was like, do you have a game you want to invite me to? Like, I'd love to come play a game. Like this is fucking like trading like casseroles, my guy. Like, we we're all neighbors. You could do one for me. Like I, that would be totally totally fine. Yeah. Um, like the fact that you have offered to run a game for people, uh, uh, it's not like they owe you their lives. It's still a game that everyone's having fun playing. Yeah. But it's extra work. So if you are hitting a wall or you're having anxiety about a lack of preparation, everyone needs to be understanding. It's it's the same thing as if you were like cooking dinner every week or every two weeks for everybody. It's like, yeah, you might love cooking dinner for everybody, but that's still extra time and work and preparation. And people uh, should be cognizant of that. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. I think we have time for, for one more question here. Um, I think we do. Uh, this next one comes f- uh, to us from uh, Theodomir. Thank you, Theodomir. Um I'm planning a campaign that is very heavy in homebrew, including homebrew classes and races. What do you recommend to keep all the information organized and easily usable without just having a wall full of sticky notes? Ooh, I'm no help here. No help here. I could point you under this desk. There are 400 index cards. Some of them just say partial words like acts of question mark. There's no, I have nothing. I could not be less helpful uh, in that department. If people saw my campaign notes for (laughs) Dimension 20, I would lose my job. And that is... (laughs) Well, good thing we're keeping this secret. This is not a lot. (laughs) Good thing this is just a private chat between you and I. Oh my God, we're being recorded. Um, uh, No, I truly, I do truly, truly believe that like... Um, well, yeah, I like, I, I honestly am in the same boat as Diana. Like, I, like if you ask me, like, like is what are your strong suits as a, as a dungeon master? Like organization would not be one of them. Um, like truly the reason I moved everything onto like Google docs and like D and D beyond and all that stuff a while ago is literally for the command find function. Like it just got to the point where yes. I was like, yeah. You know, it was like, oh, I can't keep all this straight, you, you know, analog anymore. Like, it's I'm just going to let it be a mess and we're going to let the magic of computers help me reference what the hell is going on. Um, but, yeah, I think to, to sort of, like, recommend that, of like, keeping information organized and usable, um, it's okay if you're not super organized. Like, I think that the... The end, here's, here's the thing, right? You know, my but friend of the show and buddy Mike Trapp wrote a whole sketch making fun of people who download like bullet journals and mindfulness apps and schedulers and this and that and that. It can become like an obsession to organize your own life. You have to find a balance of like, what what is the organization 
that actually meaningfully improves play at the table. And then like, if at a certain point you have like a giant messy Google doc, but like it's getting the job done, it's like, you're not, it's not slowing things down at the table. That's organized enough. It's organized enough. I, my, my one piece of advice, because really, truly I'm bad at this, but uh, my one piece of advice is that it, it, it shouldn't, no matter if you're a player or a GM, if there's lots of home homebrew going on, it shouldn't all be on you to keep everything sorted. Um, I like in homebrew games to have like a, a shared drive folder or, or uh, I'm blanking on other types of um, shared folders that everybody can have their sheets on and their um, notes and things like that so that everybody's kind of keeping each other in, in the loop. Um, because you are making up a lot of stuff that's not easily Googleable, Googleable. Mm-hmm. That's a word. Um, you know, when it's canon like D and D or canon World of Darkness, you can just go on and 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 Google that spell, you know, real quick. But um, if you have a shared folder, then it's everybody pitching in to keep it together. And that is a really great thing too with organization. Like delegate, delegate some stuff. Like mm. your players should know what their summoned thing does damage wise. Like this is of course caveat for if you're introducing people to the game and they're they're learning. But like if you've been playing for a couple years, there there is a degree to which like it's very helpful to to be like guys, I'm, I'm, it's going to help me so much if you just roll the concentration check when you're marking your damage down. It's (laughs) so helpful if you do the thing that like is your own house, your, your own bookkeeping, so to speak. Um, yeah, I, I truly love that. And again, I think with organization, like, um, part of this also is, uh, uh, I can't tell you how many times p- that people are fighting a monster and what I have open on my laptop screen are the stats for like a grizzly bear. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a lot of little corners you can cut to cut. I know this is real. <laughs> yeah. Giving away the story here. Um, but yeah, I think that you can, there are, there are corners you can cut because again, remember that how do I put this. I, I think that the ga- the game exists. Like, how do I put this? Everything behind your screen is not the game. The game is only what your players are perceiving. It's what you're narrating. It's the battle as it exists. So like, if the kitchen's a mess and the food is great, this is a weird analogy because most professional chefs do keep the kitchen kitchen quite clean. As long as you can get over the finish line, you're good. Like as long as the thing, as long as the, 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 as long as it's coming out of your mouth, articulately and it all makes sense and it's groovy no one's gonna fault you for having a jumble of index cards behind it oh um, my god yeah i there is one time i remember distinctly where i uh i we we had fought this like big enemy and they were gonna you know they were gonna croak so i was like oh you and and you know uh didn't want to do a tpk uh at that time and they had to fight the same boss later on. And I had lost that sheet for that boss that I made up. That was it was gone. Uh, but they wanted to track him down. They wanted their revenge. Uh, and 
after the fight, uh, somebody at the table was like, you really did us a solid lowering his AC. And I was like, I did, yeah, I did that for you to make sure you didn't die this time. You know, like it just, you just roll with the punches and what, what comes up, comes up. Uh, a million percent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You gotta roll with the punches, uh, and, and gang. Uh, on that note, uh, which is probably the best DMing advice you could give, which is just to go with it, uh, because hey, the story is moving. You're collaborating with your players. Uh, we're gonna wrap up Adventuring Academy here for the day. Uh, my incredible guest today, Diana Gata. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Oh, incredible. Uh, everybody, uh, go check out Neverland. Uh, go check out Femsplained. Follow Diana online. Again, if you're in the greater New York area and you're an LGBT tabletop gamer, go check out these once the world starts back up again. Uh, a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for being here. And for everyone watching at home, we will see you next time. Ah!